This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Are you ready? <laughs> are you ready? Koi, are you ready? Are you asking me? I, yes, I don't know I'm when the intro starts. You, you, they... you know how the show goes. Coy, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, guys. Listen, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I am Jeff Fader. I'm very fortunate to be with my friend, Coy Baker of Baker Forge, and we're going to get into it with him. Fascinating young man. We're going to talk to him. But first, let's take care of a little business. First things first, Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder, awesome grinder, made by knife makers. For knife makers, sculptors, anybody moving material, this is the grinder for you. I have two of them, and I swear by them. They are awesome. All the attachments are awesome. It's very user-friendly. This is definitely something that will up your game. So go to BroadbeckIronworks.com, put in the promo code KNIFETALK10, and you're going to get 10% off all their grinders, attachments, parts, all of it. Definitely get yourself one of them broadbacks and go follow them on Instagram and you can talk to them too. There's customer services, Dynamite, Ryan, Vince, Ben, all those guys are awesome guys. So broadbackironworks.com, uh, Knife Talk 10 for 10% off. Even Heat, Even Heat are the manufacturer are the finest heat treat ovens available. Go get yourself one of them Even Heats in, when you go to evenheat-kiln.com. I love these guys. I'm telling you, say it. I've been dealing with these guys for a long time, and I really appreciate them. I appreciate their customer service. I appreciate their products. It's very user friendly. Their customer service is the best. You call them up. You need a. You have a. You have a question. They're going to save it for fix it for you. Go to evenheat-kiln.com and definitely check out the tap control. It makes your life so much easier. Solid state drive makes everything nice and even. And uh, you can even get the turn and burn, which is just set it and forget it, which is a lot of guys are starting to really like. It's a very simplified, you don't have to program anything, and it's great. So definitely check out what's going on, evenheat-kiln.com. If you are in Australia and you're saying to yourself, I want to become a knife maker or blacksmith, and I just don't know what to do. Go to nordicedge.com.au or at nordic underscore edge. They have been making tools for knife makers and blacksmiths and for a long time, since 2015. That's a long time, almost 10 years. And um, they're making great stuff and they're teaching classes. Uh, you can definitely take some classes or if you want to, you know, Tip your toe into knife making. They also have kits so you can actually put a knife together without having to do the heat treatment and stuff like that. So definitely check out what's going on over at, even at um, nordicedge.com.au. And uh, the, some of the best in the best in Australia are involved with them, including Jamie Bishop and Mert Sansu and all those guys. So definitely check out what's going on over there. If you are in, in, I always say that, if you are in Canada or in the United States, definitely check out my friend Lawrence Lake at Maritime Knife Supplies. MaritimeKnifeSupply.com, MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca for all your uh, knife-making needs. Belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils, and everything you need to get started or resupplied. They're in Canada. They work really fast. Uh, I actually buy a lot of my belts from him, and I'm amazed at how fast they come to me. And he even throws mints in your box because, obviously, you know, got to have a little bit of a sweet tooth or something, or maybe your breath's no good. Definitely check out what's going on with Lawrence. He's got all sorts of new steel all the time. He's very involved with the New England School of Metalwork. Shout out to my friend uh, Joyce Cuddy, who just received the um, Maritime Knife Supply Scholarship with, that's going to be involved with the New England School of Metalwork. 
Lawrence is taking care of a lot of people in the knife making community, so you should definitely check out what's going on with him. He's a small business supporting the knife making community, the making community in general. So many thanks to him. I also want to thank my friends at Trojan Horse Forge at Sam and Jeff, makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, these vices are incredible. And I use every knife we have that comes out of the shop, goes on the, on the knife, the Sable Rail Knife Finishing Vice twice. Once when we're hand sanding, because it's got the decks with the rubber, it is really easy if you have an integral bolster, if you have a curved blade, it's very adjustable, and it will even distal taper, no problem, it'll handle it. And then when we slap on the handle, rough it all out with a grinder, and then get ready to sand it, it goes back on the table rail knife finishing vise, and that's for you. So go to trojanhorseforge.com, put in the promo code, put in the promo code full blast 10, you're going to get 10% off the device, get 10% off the Sentinel Oil, T4 Sentinel Oil, which I think is really great stuff too, and the handle press attachment, and they have free shipping, I think. I think we have free shipping. Free shipping, I think. Don't ask me. You talk to, don't worry about that part. Pretend you didn't hear that part. Full Blast 10 gets you 10% off. I'm with you, Trojan Horse Forge. Uh, and w- now that I think about it, I want to, I want to say a, a big shout out to my friends at Total Boat. Totalboat.com slash Full Blast is the affiliate code to get yourself some of that UV cure, get you some of that two part epoxy, that high performance epoxy. My, my throat isn't 100%, so I'm going to sound real. I'm off on some radio. I'm off radio tonight. Today, get yourself some of that total boat, baby. Put yourself. Put you. Put your dead animals in it, like Jimmy Duresta. You. You. I want to say something else, but I don't think I. I don't think Kristen listens to this anyway. Go to totalboat.com/slash/fullblast. Keith Decenteric from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Duresta. They're all shoving stuff in their total boat, and you should too. So get yourself some of that. And speaking of. Great handle material. Let's talk. I, I always try to. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna burn some bridges at some point. G. L. Hansen and Sons, makers of G. Carta. G. Carta is a unique composite of natural fibers and fabrics mixed with epoxy under pressure and heat. Definitely, definitely, definitely. It's like imagine if you know what my card is. Is it's fabric and he puts them in these patterns that are really amazing and then he makes this giant loaf and then he cross cuts the loaf and then you end up getting these amazing scales. Bofa, Ripple Cut, Tuxini by Mikey, Mahi Mahi, Radium G, Radio Worm G, Carta, Pheasant, Colorama, Hoopla. They're all really amazing. And uh, definitely go over to gcarta.bigcartel.com for that GL Hanson & Sons. And go to at g.l.hanson.sons on Instagram, and then you can see what, what's going on. I want to thank my friends at Tormac. Tormac celebrating 50 years in business with the black T8 sharpening, water-cooled sharpening system. I love Tormek, and it was a long way, and it was all user error. I was playing, and I shouldn't have been playing. The Tormeks are great. They have really great uh, attachments. They have really great... They make, it, they make sharpening knives and axes and chisels brainless. And these dime... Just the Pete's... Uh, let me tell you something. FYI, the diamond stones are unbelievable. No truing. You don't have to true the stones. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So definitely go over to Tormek.com. Check out what's going on with them. And check out them at Tormek underscore sharpening on Instagram. And thank you very much, Tormek. I also want to thank last week's guest, Brian House, sent me the 
uh, the Rapid Quench plates, and I'm very, very excited to give them a try. They are awesome, and everything Brian's doing. I got such nice messages in regards to this last episode which with Brian, which is always fun to talk with him. He's doing a lot of great stuff, and I think you should definitely listen to the Work For podcast and go to his website and see what he's making because he's constantly making new things for the maker community that is there to help you. So definitely check out Brian House at housemade.us and then housemade on Instagram, okay? And then now I want to talk about my friend, Coy Baker. Coy Baker's here, and I just want to do my normal ad read, and then he can come in anytime he wants. <laughs> Coy Baker is the president. Uh, the, is the owner is the operator is the is the founder of Baker Forge at under uh, Baker Forge which is also at uh, Baker Forge and Tool on Instagram this is the company that makes the copper mascus and the bronze mascus and the bronze mine the copper mine and the sand mine and all this incredibly intricate stuff that looks amazing and the reason why it looks amazing is they do such a good job we're going to find out how he does it but what it's more amazing is it's fucking brainless. Like, I've never once had a problem. I've never once had a problem with it. It comes in yield. It's super-duper easy to heat treat. The website's very easy to use. And I'm always impressed at how even everything always is with these sheets of this, I don't we call it exotic steel, Koi? Uh, for the most part, yeah. We just call it exotic steel. Exotic, exotic laminated steel. It's unbelievable. I, I, every time I use it, I'm always... The things that I'm impressed by are the fact that it is equal. Everything's equal. Everything's even. There's never delaminations. There's never problems. I never have a problem with it. I've had a lot of... You've sent me a lot of different stuff, and I've never had a problem with it. And if you go to bakerforge.com and you put in the promo code full blast, you're going to get 10% off. And you're going to end, if you're in the EU, you can get 10%, I don't know, you can get anything from Matt, but you can go to DIY <laughs> Europe and get yourself some of that Gator Piss. We're going to talk about Gator Piss. Gator Piss is the most controversial etching of, in the history of the world. I don't think anyone talks about Gator Piss like they do Gator Piss. I, my favorite slug line is Gator Piss. A gator is short for alligator, and piss is short for urine. Get yourself some of that Gator Piss, baby. <laughs> Stop playing. So, without any further ado, the owner, operator, president, El Comandante of Baker Forge, Coy Baker's here. Coy, how the hell are you? Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Jeff. I've been looking forward to coming on and chatting with you, and I am so glad you didn't make me read my own ad read. No, of course <laughs> not. No, I, lo see, I love, I mean, that's that has become my one of my favorite things. And and to a lot, to, to, to not, without talking about it to the listeners, I, we... On this ep on this podcast and Knife Talk, we always give extra reads that for <laughs> then are the contracts that we have with our state other people. Just out of, I love doing ad reads. I I've always wanted to be a radio guy, and this has been the the most fun of all time. And the funny part is, is when I do the ad reads for 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 Baker Forge, I get the most reaction out of it because you let me kind of. I figured if you're going to name one of your products Gator Piss. I think you probably aren't too like uptight in regards to what I say. So nope, I always get very good. People like the ad reads when I go a little bit overboard, and and that's why for pretty much all the podcasts we sponsor, we just let them go with it. We don't give them a script. Um, you in particular, we love your style, love the way you read it out, um, the embellishments, how you 
you know, you hit every aspect and you put the, your comedic twist on it, your mm. classic Jeff Fader twist. And so we love the, the way you do the ad reads. We're very appreciative of how you uh, handle that for us. Well, it's, it's what here, I'll tell you what's interesting. I guess you and I met or we talked or we were, you sent me some steel a few years ago, mm-hmm. probably like four years ago, something like that, right? Must have been oh, wow. three or four years ago. Maybe yeah, more? it was a. It was a while back. Oh. It was a while back. Now here, yeah. I thought about this for a long time. You sent me this steel, it had a beautiful steel, and then had the it had the 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 stencil print of your logo, which is this beard, and there's like it's kind of got a little Soviet Union thing going on, but it's great. <laughs> yes. And and I'll be honest with you, when I got it, I thought, well, I don't know when I'm going to get to this. And part of the reason why is because when I started knife making and I went to Blade Show and I saw all these, there were these companies that were making steel, pattern welded steel, Damascus for lack of a better word, for makers. They were making it and it was interesting. I know that Salem Straub makes steel for people and there started to be these companies that were making billets of steel strictly for soccer removal guys who weren't going to be able to get presses and whatever, be able to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And then what I started to notice was I was getting con- I was getting messages, especially through Knife Talk, that there were some like flea bag companies. Like there were some companies that were not they were selling the steel, but it was like there were delaminations and there was like you know just complete like and you finish the knife and there's a problem, right. and then their customer service wasn't very good and and I didn't at the time when you sent me the steel I was just like I don't know in my in the back of my mind I was just like. Well, I don't want to make this, you know, I hope, I don't know if, I don't know Koi at all. You know, he was very nice to send me this. And all of a sudden, one day, I was just like, let's just knock this thing out. And I, and I was stupefied at how easy it was to use, but that it, there were no issues or con, there were no consistencies that you couldn't see. So, like, for me, that was like, that yeah, was it. I was just like, okay, Koi's my guy. He, and then, like I said in the ad reads, every piece I've used, there hasn't been a blemish. There hasn't been an issue. There hasn't been a problem. There hasn't been like I've gotten steel from companies where the core isn't in the middle, mm-hmm. and that can be problematic when you're heat treating. So oh, yeah. it was. I was very very impressed with it with your steel completely. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I remember sending you that billet, and at the time, going, I like this guy Jeff. I listen to him on the Knife Talk podcast. I follow him on Instagram, and I'm gonna. I mean, shameless plug. I was angling in order to get that into your hands so that i could see it on your on your instagram yeah. feed and at some point potentially approach you for uh for sponsorship because i i just love what you're doing on the podcasts and um and so that was the original you know drive behind sending you that first bar <laughs> I, I know i figured i figured i mean at the same time it's just like you know life gets in the way of things and sometimes you just don't oh, get yeah. to them and then but the best part was was like the right job came out and then it was just like i I was just I I was like this is really really great, and then um, that was back when it was an old nasty looking gray bar with scale all over it. <laughs> the, yeah, the, uh, but I mean that didn't matter. That doesn't matter to me. I, I get steel made by my good friend uh, Bob Rankin makes steel for me, and and I, I don't love care Bob. about all that. I don't care about Bob's the best. He's a good and, dude. I hang out with him at Blade Show pretty much every time. Bob's the man, and he makes great. He's makes he he I I got real concerned with other. Uh, buying Damascus from other people because he Bob spoiled me because I never had a problem with his steel too so I get very like protect well, I get like loyal because I'm just like I don't have a problem so I'm gonna stick with him so like in, mm-hmm. with your steel like I said I never have a problem how did you I know that 
listened to you. You were on uh, Chris Cash's podcast, uh, and you were also on the work for it a few few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Chris's podcast name again? Uh, Axe and Iron. Axe and Iron podcast. I'm telling you, laugh it up, Chris, if you're leaving to listen to this. But it's like you don't do it anymore. It's like they do it once a month, and I forget. Oh, I know. Or twice every two months. You know? Yeah, Chris, Chris, Chris who? you got to get back on it. Chris, love Chris, but it's like, come on, man. Um, and I love your story because I feel as though one of the things I touch upon in re- when I talk to people is I do feel that people's businesses in the maker community are very well informed by their previous jobs or their previous experience. And you have a very strong business to business background because before you were in a blacksmithing, you had a paint company, right? A paint mm-hmm. painter, a house painting company. Yeah. How did you, how did you start with that? So that was actually started by my father. Um, backtracking goodness i don't know how long ago i should probably write a timeline out on these things but he was running a painting company up here in the high country in north carolina um he started it to basically they moved up to this area uh he's a pastor and so he was um moving with a church and so he didn't have a day job outside of that a very small church at the time um and he needed some to make some money and so he started this painting company um he had done some painting in a company for a friend back in raleigh years ago and so he knew how to do it and he just started a, a small little business, just painting. And at the time, I was—I had just moved back home to help them renovate a house. I was 18 or 19, and just started painting with him. And at, throughout the years, you know, he started getting kind of tired of it. Um, that's actually a funny story. He—he he went on vacation because he was so burnt out. He and my mom went on to the beach for two weeks, and I was tasked with managing everything while he was gone. And they came back and, and I had enjoyed managing and running the business so much during those two weeks, even though I was scared to death to start. Uh, he came back and I, I sat down with him and I told him, I said, you know what, Bob, I think it's time for you to take a back seat and I'm going to drive this train. Because so I've got what did he say when you said that? He kind of laughed and chuckled and uh, <laughs> he said he kind of wanted to think about it a little bit. But I think the next day, I mean, it was pretty fast. He, he said, you know what, I think it's time. I'm I'm burnt out. This is too much for me. Um, he's a great people person, uh, but sometimes people, pers- pe- people, people have trouble um, billing people, asking for money. You know, right. the invoicing side of things. And so, I mean, the company was small. It was me, my two brothers, and him. And you know, we weren't making much money at the time, and just enough to feed everybody. But um, I had a vision for going. Hey, we could make this a lot bigger. I mean, we've got the name and the clientele. People. The word of mouth was huge. People loved us and lots of return customers. And so I told him, hey, I think we can scale this a lot, and I'd like to scale it. I think I can do it. And so he said, all right. He uh, said, you're going to keep the checkbook then, and it's all you. And so let's see. From that point on, uh, the following year, we tripled revenue in the company, Mm -hmm. and uh the year after we tripled again. So we just, we're on a path for, for growing that business. And my business, the business side of me really just exploded. And I loved the business side. I didn't like painting particularly. I had other people no. painting. I was, everyone hates painting. Nobody oh, likes God, painting. It's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. I if you like painting. painting, it's just cause you like huffing the fumes. That's oh, what I say. God, I hate everything about it. I hate cutting in. I hate laying the, <laughs> the thing on the floor. I hate, the mop. I hate the whole. Th- I hate the cleanup. I hate all of it. I hate painting. 
Oh yeah, and I to this day I, I dread touching a paintbrush to paint my oh. own house. So, um, but yeah. So it, uh, I mean, I would imagine that as you're growing, you have a real. You how did you learn how to manage people? Because that's really. I mean, painting houses. I mean, you could be a painter, you and your friend, but when you start to like grow. You have to create like a you have to create almost like a job foreman, and then you have to mm -hmm. like this person is in charge of this, and then how do you how do you how did you learn how to manage people? You know, so first off, I'm I'm an oldest I'm an older child of two other brothers, and so some of that comes a little naturally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, being able to manage or managing people, it just was a little bit innate for me. Um, and at the time when when Bruce was taking that vacation, that's my dad, Bruce. He, I was already kind of running a, a little crew, you know, I was kind of in charge on site for making sure things got done. So I already had some responsibility in, in, in that. Um, but moving up into that and figuring out who's best at what position and, you know, hiring those guys to put them in management so that they can run their own crew. It, I did not, uh, I don't have a background in business, did not go to college. Um, and it's just, it was a passion of mine. I studied all you know, read books, look stuff up online, how to do this, how to do that in the in the business sector. Listen to business podcasts. Um, just I spent a lot of time learning um, as much and absorbing as much as I could, and spending time with other business owners or buddies of mine who had businesses and learning from them. So it was all by immersion, really. Hmm. And so I would also was, think that I'm sorry for interrupting. I would also think that that there is. Man, I think that what you do, a lot of it is this: the concept of leadership is is really, really hard, especially if you have no background in it. Mm -hmm. It is for sure, and I didn't have any background in it at all, and it 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 just came naturally. I don't have a better answer for that, unfortunately. Yeah. More no, that's fine. More or less, my personality fit well with that role, and I never really did good with. You know, working for somebody else, obviously working for my dad, it's that's a little different. Right. Um, but in the past, you know, I'd had jobs where I worked for somebody else um, in and out here and there and hated it. You know, I always would look at something and go, you know what, you could do this better, but I'm not in a position to be able to do it better. It's not my job, you know. That's that's <clears throat> one of the things that a lot of people, especially makers or fabricators, in fabrication, there's always... You get a nice job, you're a welder, maybe you think that you're, you could run the business better than the boss, and you know how you do it, but you get in the position, that person might get in the position of, of on being on their own or leadership, and they're just completely lost. Mm -hmm. you know, when you have the luxury of having a job, and then you can kind of um, Monday morning quarterback the decisions that your boss is making from the luxury of your, you know, your paycheck, Mm -hmm. It's 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 much different than actually doing it because I've known tons of fabricators. I've known tons of fabricators in those different shops, and behind the scenes, they're you know they're smirking at the boss and oh he's so stupid and he doesn't know what he's doing. And this is if I were to run this shop, and then they get the opportunity and then they they don't do anything. Right. I mean, there's so much more that comes with it. You know, it's not just making the calls on a, on a day-to-day -day basis of, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, we need to get this done. It's carrying that stress home of, right. hey, I have to make this work or my employees aren't going to feed their families, you know. That's critical. That's so critical to the whole of this. Mm -hmm. So and, you've, yeah. you've, pardon me? Sorry, no, go ahead. I, 
you so at what point do you start forging? So I started forging when I was a kid. So this goes way back. Uh, I did it as a hobby since I was 13, 12 or 13. Huh. And I built, I, I, uh, I had a friend who was in blacksmithing and he was making replica Lord of the Rings swords and knives. Um, he just fired stuff up in his backyard and was just doing it. And looking back now, I'm sure it wasn't the most, you know, classy work. But in my mind at that time, I was like, oh my gosh, you're the coolest guy in the entire world. Right. And he was going off to college at the time and he gave me his old anvil. And I set that anvil up in the backyard and I started a coal fire in my driveway, gravel driveway, mm. and started heating up some steel and beating it on top of this anvil. A little tiny cast iron piece of junk, but it was the world to me and I loved moving metal. And I did that as a hobby for years, um, mostly angling towards into the knife stuff. I made a lot of knives, um, not good knives. And there's a reason I'm not a knife maker today <laughs> for multiple reasons. But... So I started a, a long time ago and just kept it as a hobby for, for many years. Um, in and out, you know, I'd go a year or two and then touch it, and then I'd get back into it and be hardcore on it for a while. So, yeah, it was it was a long time um, just as a hobby. Never got anything serious uh, as far as skills. Uh, looked up videos on YouTube. I didn't know any makers in the area or connect with anybody who really could teach me how to, you know, really do it really well. Um, but then it kind of all comes together when I was already running the paint company. I had a little one car garage at my house when I had a little shop in there and I was forging knives out of this little homemade forge and I hated finishing knives. I was always the guy who was forging out a knife blank and I go, I love this. This looks awesome. But now I don't really want to put a handle on it or grind it or hand right. sand it because hand sand is for the birds. Um, yeah. And so... I would just end up with piles of forged knife blanks. And if you've ever been to Jason Knight's shop, or anybody listening, you can. Jason is the same way. He forges a lot of knives, and they're all over his shop. And then he he's much better at selecting and finishing them than I am. But his shop looked like mine because it was just covered in blanks. And then I didn't feel. I realized I didn't. I don't really want to be a knife maker. I like the forging aspect. So what what can I do that? Does, is mostly just forging. And I was like, well, ornamental work, you know, you can forge all kinds of cool ornamental stuff. And I did a bunch of that too. Uh, but I started going down the Damascus road and tried to make my first build of Damascus by hand. And that is also for the birds. <laughs> Big time. Oof. And decided, you know what, it's time for a press. And I didn't want to spend the money on buying a press. And so I built my own. Again, wow. YouTube, research, bought some books. And taught myself how about hydraulics, and I built a 25-ton H-frame press, very mm. similar to the H-frame presses you see out there these days. Um, and as soon as I finished it, I immediately started making Damascus on it, and it was the best. It was so awesome, and I loved making the Damascus. And at this time, I was on Instagram and started, you know, was posting what I was doing. I posted all about you know, the build of the press and how I made it and all that. And, you know, I had like 120 followers. I didn't really care. I was just doing it just as a somewhere to share what I was doing. Um, and that kind of started the whole selling billets because I started getting approached by people who were like, hey, that's a really cool billet of Damascus you made there. Do you want to sell it or can you make me one? I was like, oh, heck, sure. And, you know, what are you, you going to sell it for? 
I don't know, hundred bucks, fifty bucks. I have I had no idea. I was selling Damascus so cheap, um, and so I, I got on that road and I started diving into the mosaic work, um, taking heavy inspiration from guys like Mareko and Salem Straub and Steve Swarzer and those guys, and just started really having a ball with that. And this was right around the time I met Jason through a a friend of a friend. Uh, he introduced us, and I went over to Jason's shop. And Jason taught me how to make sand mine, stainless sand mine, and all that sort of stuff. And gave me some more pointers on the Damascus making road. And he and I became good buddies. And what long after that, somebody asked me about putting copper in a billet of steel. And I told him, well, you're crazy. Because copper don't belong in Damascus. And they said, well, we're, we'll, we'll pay you to try it out. We, we really need to incorporate this into the steel for... I don't know, some special project. So I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I put some copper, some big old thick pieces of copper in between some steel and put it in the forge and immediately melted it and ruined my forge. Yeah. Because <clears throat> uh, you can't get that too hot. Learn that lesson the hard way. I think that's, just to interrupt, that's one of the questions that we get all the time on Knife Talk and here is how does it not, what, it, all right, keep going. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, the melting is what everyone seems to think is going to happen. Yeah, and so, I mean, copper does have a low melting temperature when you compare it to steel, but uh, you've got a large range there. Um, most steels, and Steve Swarzer will tell you this, I mean, Steve, back in the day, he figured out that you could forge weld Damascus, you know, two steels together at a super low range. I think he was doing it down to like 1,400 degrees in the proper environment. And so it doesn't take, you don't have to be at 2,200 degrees to bond steel together. And so once I really started learning that and figuring out how to treat the copper inside the billet, because there's a lot of ways, like you don't want to melt the copper, obviously, but even if it was in a canister, totally sealed up, if you take that copper to its liquidest point, the copper changes metallurgically and doesn't flow the same way in a billet as if it stays in a solid state. And so with all of our steels, the copper or bronze is kept at its what's called solidus liquidus state, which is right before it goes from solid to liquid. Even if it's in a canister, because if it goes to liquid, you can no longer control how it's displayed in the material. It moves around too much, you'll get blo heavy blobs in some areas, you don't get your crisp lines. And so there's a very there's a narrow window of working the copper at, which is, you know, it's just a process we developed over time. Um, but yeah, after a lot of testing initially and a lot of failure, I finally got one to work. And I sent it off to the people, and they loved it. And I was, of course, documenting this on Instagram. And that's that classic Brian House, you know, document, don't create. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, I didn't know Brian at the time. But it kind of took off. It took off in a big way. It was the right time in the market for something new like this. And it started blowing up. And I had so many people asking me, I was just making steel on weekends and at nights after work, and I could not keep up with the demand at all. I mean, I had lists long as my arm that of people waiting for steel from me, and I would just finish up four or five billets over a weekend and send out a couple of messages, and I could have them go sold in you know four or five minutes. Hmm. So, so, I mean, what's amazing to me, this is the... There's a fearless. I, I was thinking about you, and I was thinking about the steel, and I was thinking about this company. And there's a fearlessness because you know that when you forge out a billet of Damascus, 
that you don't know if there's a problem until you until you grind it and etch it. So there's this like I would imagine there's this bit of fear of like, well, I hope everything worked out okay, because you know you, the thought of giving someone a, a billet of steel and then they do this beautiful knife. They paid a lot of money. They do this beautiful knife. They grind it. They heat treat it. They they sand it. They finish it. They put the handle on it. And they dip it in the dip it in the you know gator piss. Next thing you know, there's like a big old you know lump in there that you can't get out. I would imagine that in the beginning stages, you're a little bit like crossing your fingers and hoping that everything turns out okay. I mean, to some degree, uh, I think when it comes down to your process of how you're making the steel, how clean you're keeping it from stage to stage during you know, restacks and, and, and stuff like that. You know, you can really control the environment of the internals of the Damascus as long as you are, you know you're working from clean steel to clean steel. You're not allowing opportunities for there to be problems inside. A lot of the bigger production Damascus that comes out of, not really the U.S., but especially out of overseas, they're hot-folding the steel but in that traditional, you know, hot fold method where they're just stacking it over while it's hot, squirt some flux in there and, you know, and pray that all the, you know, all the scale dissolves and is not stuck in your billet. <clears throat> That's where a lot of those imperfections come from in Damascus. Um, I, from the, to this day, it's, it's pretty rare for us to have a problem inside just the Damascus. Um, more, majority of the issues we have are in when we're dealing with the copper stuff and we have quality control steps throughout the entire process to make sure if there is a spot or an issue that's either cut out or discarded and uh, those areas aren't used in, in final pieces. So it's it's just a matter of working with quality material and keeping it keeping that quality through each step, making sure you're working with clean steel at all times. So you're at your wit's end. You have a, mile, a list a mile long. you got this painting company. You turn to someone and say, I got to get this thing bigger. Or what do you say? Well, what happens so next? I sat down with my brothers and dad, the paint company, one day. Over to, It was during a company meeting, I think. And all of us were kind of tired of painting. I loved running the business. I loved the business aspect of it. But the, the guys who were actually painting and running painting crews, they're like, you know what? It's just, I think it's time for us to, to move on. And I think we want to try to do something different. And I said, you know, this was before the copper stuff really should have taken off. And so we were kind of in this mode of keeping an eye out, you know, of future possibilities, what we might move into next. Um, do we sell the company? Do we just hold on to it for a while, let somebody else manage it and bring it in a management company? You know, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. And so when this, the copper and Damascus stuff really started taking off, I, I brought it to the guys. I was like, hey, we might have an opportunity here. This might be our next, this might be our out, you know, of the paint side of things. And I would like to start dedicating some more time to it. And that's going to cut into painting to some degree because I can't just keep doing this at nights. Right. And so we've made some little adjustments. I started coming home more around uh, two or three in the afternoon and giving myself some more afternoon work in the forge just to kind of test the water, see how things went. And my brother, Jay, he also started coming out a couple of days a week and helping me in those afternoons and evenings to, uh, to, get, to get work done, to get batches made, to get steel, to just see how, big, how much we, bigger we could get, really, and uh, if we could get some of these orders knocked out. So I started doing that, 
and it just kept growing and the demand just kept growing and our awareness the more i mean our followers started doubling and tripling and hmm. people started really getting a, a hold of us and i think the big catalyst was when uh, are you familiar with the company half face blades the name sounds familiar they're uh, it's a stock removal company they're very military uh in the military market very military based hmm. they're out in san diego um the owner andy reached out to me and said hey this is some of the next level stuff that I've never seen before in the knife industry. I want this in some of our next runs. Uh, how soon can you make me, I think it was 90 billets. How big is each billet? Uh, his billet order, they were two and a half wide by 18 inches long wow. by like three sixteenths. That's a huge amount of work. Oh, at 90. the time, at the time, he, when he, he wanted a quote for it and I quoted it. But I was telling the guys, I was like, hey, this this is way more than I can do. Like, we're going to have to put our balls to the walls. And I think I gave myself, like, three months on that. I told him, you know, it would be three months before I can have it done. He's like, nope, no problem. And he immediately paid the invoice in full. And wow. I was like, holy crap, all right, I really, you know, I've bitten off. I've bitten the sandwich. Here we go. It's time to get started. So wow. that was around the time we realized we needed a rolling mill because uh, 3 sixteenths is pretty thin to try to do on a press. Right. Uh, it's, it's damn near impossible, actually. And so I, my brother Zach, is kind of, he's an engineer mind. He was running, he was in the paint company as well. And I said, hey, I need you to design me a rolling mill because i got to be able to roll this steel out. And so he spent a couple of weekends, put together a plan. I ordered all the steel, and we built a little rolling mill to be able to huh. roll out for this order specifically. And this was this was around the time where it was you know I was telling the guys hey look I just got an order for 90 bars of steel like we can actually take this somewhere and so the decision was made for me to go ahead and start looking for a shop um, someplace outside of my little garage and some actual commercial space that we could start to grow this in from the ground up we wanted to keep it organic we didn't want to artificially inflate it with a big loan or anything right off the bat. And we were just going to keep running the paint company. And so I basically did two full-time jobs for about a year and a half Jeez. while trying to get this off the ground. And, you know, uh, you're very smart. You're very smart. And I think that there's, I think that they're very smart in terms of thinking about loans or something that's a great opportunity. But to be able to say, I, maybe I don't want to do a loan. Maybe we can see if we can hand them out this. It's, it's a gamble. And it, I'm always questioning whether what what's one what's worth what which one is worth more. Mm -hmm. I think there's a time for a company to get a loan, and every every business is different. So I mean I don't think there's a, a clean blanket you can put across everything. Um, I knew for this because it was an industry we had never you know we weren't well versed in knife making industry is not something we were really a part of, and so without having some of that background knowledge on the industry itself and where it was at, uh, we wanted to play it safe. And we were growing well on Instagram. We had the demand in the market for what we were currently producing, and we knew we could produce more and still not be meeting that demand. Mm -hmm. And so it was around the time we started getting into the, the drop system, where we were doing drops of steel every week. Um and the and drops it prevents you it, it, it prevents you from having to take pre-orders exactly i hated the whole pre-order thing in fact i never took pre-orders um it was always uh, well i say that except for that one company but i tried to never take pre-orders i just had a list 
going to be like a dibs list, you know. If right. you were on, it, on the dibs list, I'd contact you with what I had. If not, if you didn't want to buy anything at the time, I go to the next person. And that's hard to maintain. But we went to the dibs system, or the, to the drop system. We had a built a website. I hired somebody out to do that because I suck at websites. Um, and started selling on a, on a weekly drop basis. And we were still, no matter how much we put up on the website, it would sell out within the hour. Mm. Um, it was all wow. gone. And so found some space. With, actually, we shared it with a local knife maker. It was 3,000 square feet, which when I first moved in there, all of my stuff fit in one tiny little corner. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I'm never going to fill up this space. Uh, a couple of months in, of course, we filled it up. But uh, hired a, a couple of small part-time guys, actually just one. It was a young guy, um, just a kid. He's fresh out of high school, looking for a little bit of work. He was a friend of ours. He came in started working part-time for me on the days I was there, or in the afternoons when I was there, helping me just get stuff done. And again, my brother Jay would come out and do the same thing. And um, it just started snowballing. We started adding more guys. Jay came on full-time. I ended up moving to just working remote work with the paint company, so just handling customers via the phone and invoicing and kind of the back-end work. And my other brother running more of the on-site work, so I had to do less driving and more time in my shop. So uh, that eventually got to the point where we we sold off the painting company. It got to be too big. Baker Forge was growing at a rapid rate. We were hiring more people. I needed to dedicate my time to the new business. And, uh, yeah, so we sold that off and started running Baker Forge full-time, and now we're up to about a dozen dozen employees now. So, yeah, took off. What's there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack, but but what there's a lot just just a side note in terms of the drop system versus the pre-order system. The pre it it's in the knife game. It's it's really like it's it's love it's love hate, and I think probably with other businesses love hate. It's not love hate in the fabrication business because if you go to a fabricator sending a railing, you're going to ask you're going to get a deposit, and then you're going to get like installments based on that the pro the progress uh, uh payments and when we started doing knife making it was like it was the only way to guarantee we were, were gonna get paid after we make the stuff so it was like p- paying peter to you know you end up uh pay what is it the expression you're stealing from peter to pay paul mm-hmm. and it took a long time to get that get out of there but one of the interesting things that i had aaron goff on a number of months ago and he re- he referred to uh uh pre-order as a type of loan that you're going to pay back and i really had a very uh, good feeling about it i I really like the way you come described it because as long as you don't screwing anybody it becomes this great way for you to get money up front to pay for the things that you need to get done in order to succeed Mm -hmm. yep for sure and yeah I, I hate I hate borrowing money for one, and that yeah. always was sort of the feel. If you take a pre order, you're getting paid for it all up front, and now two weeks later, you're like, oh crap, got this pressure on me. And there's that pressure of these people are expecting what they've paid for, and it's I don't like that pressure. And it's a, I'd rather it just be a, a, a product's out, one and done. The only pressure is now I got to get it in a box, put a label on it, get it out. How hard is it when somebody calls you up and says, I got this, I got this bar of steel from the drop. But I need. But my customer wants to me to make a set. Can you? Can you? Can you give me more of the exact same thing? How hard is that? 
Initially, it was very hard because yeah. we would just make a set of steel. We try to vary the sizes so that people had options to pick from in thickness, width, and length. And if somebody needed a set, we would have to say, hey, you know what? We can do a, a run, a bulk order for you, but it's got to be over a certain minimum. I can't just go make three billets for you right? because it takes so much to put together a drop or a, a, a batch. And we make each stage we'll make all the cladding material in bulk and then we'll go through and make the core material and then we'll go through and put them together and so like the way we had structured the the system the production it was very hard to go in and just make three bars and so we had a i think the minimum back in the day was you had to buy, uh, buy 250 linear inches of steel at one time and that wow. was the minimum we would make just because it was so expensive to only make like two bars so, initially, I think we lost a lot of business that way at the beginning, but that's the only way we could really handle it. And it, it didn't really matter because we had so much demand for everything we made anyway. If we that's just miss, the way it is. If we missed two bars for, on this guy, we would sell, you know, 30 more tomorrow on the drop. It didn't really matter. <laughs> so, but now, I mean, this changed now, but. I can only imagine. And, and as you're growing... I just it, what's amazing is is I really believe that your experience in the paint company helped you seamlessly figure out the management of the job at Baker Forge. And what's interesting is is because the paint company is all outside out you know install work. It's all in right. the field work. So you have a different type of management style because there also is an expectation that your the people who are working in people's homes have to behave a certain way. Right. Now that you're at Baker Forge, everything's in-house. It's almost like a different style of management because you're not sending people off, you know, a half an hour away and you don't know they don't know where to get gas or get lunch or they don't know what they don't, you know, they got the 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 the, the person didn't leave the keys. We can't get into the house. There's no there's no like um Things that happen that you're unaware of. Right. It's very easy to structure right. the shop. And it's yeah. not easy to structure on-site job work that where the job changes daily. And everything is, you know, all of a sudden, oh, she doesn't want us to wear shoes. What do we do? Or I, they don't want <laughs> in the house, mm -hmm. can wear shoes in the house. Or there's all these little, there's like management of being in the field. There's so much more to it than just go ahead and paint the house. Like, oh, they didn't leave the key. They didn't leave the key, or we, where's the, or we had a problem with, uh, you know, the smoke alarm went off, or there's all sorts of things in, out of your control because it's not in your shop. I hate it. When I was in a fabrication shop, we would do fabrication for union uh, jobs, and we would do uh, installations too. I hated installations because you don't have the stuff that you have in your shop, and you don't know where everything is and stuff like that. You don't know how to be, you know, well, you got to be, you know, you tell your guys in your truck, all right, now this be, you have to, we have to make sure we don't drop anything and, you know, the floor is this, that, and the thing. But when you're in your own shop, all that stuff kind of fades away and all of a sudden you can focus just strictly on the work. Exactly. And uh, that was one of the bigger issues in the painting company with employees was finding because we we had garnered this reputation of being very trustworthy painters right which is hard to find in that industry i mean painting let's be honest it's, it's one of the bottom of the barrel you know jobs and so it garners and brings people to that industry who are not all that great let's just say who are 
have problems. I have a story for you about a painter, but go ahead, keep going. Well, um, so we had this reputation of being very trustworthy, upstanding people. And when we're trying to expand further and further, finding people and hiring people that were willing to paint, but were somebody I trusted and would trust to put in my house with my wife and kids, got to be very, very hard. And so right. we kind of got to the point with the painting company, we maxed out the people in our area who would work for us, um, who we could trust. You know, we had to fire a lot of people because it's like, hey, it's not working out. You're creepy. Or we just didn't hire people because, <laughs> like, hey, I want a job. It's like, well, you've, your face is in completely one tattoo. Like, I can't put you in the house. And this is a very expensive ritzy area the right the high country is we we're painting houses that are worth tens of millions of dollars and so we can't just send in anybody so I, that was, was a, a big couple, problem the couple jobs we worked for you, you ever watched the cosby show when you were a kid uh yeah not it's been a long time but I, yes, no it's been I, a long time but the mrs huxtable we did railings in mrs huxtable uh felicia rashad's house Oh, no, and didn't. we were so excited. We were so excited, and but we were all like on our best behavior. Sure. And we were like, because also the it was it was an already finished house, so there were carpets. We had to install this railing with carpets on the floor, and we had to take our shoes off. And mm. she was so nice, and but it was like everything. Don't touch. We would whisper, don't. When we're bringing the railings up the stairs. Don't touch the wall. Don't touch the wall. Mm-hmm. And you know it was it was tricky because it's just like there is this expectation of like and. You have Felicia Shaw. You don't want to be creepy for Mrs. Huxtable. You know, you want to be nice. And the whole thing's crazy. But I do have this one story I have to tell you about this painter. So a number of years ago, we had the outside of our paint, our house painted. And we had knew somebody who knew somebody. And he says, I got, a, I got some guys and they're going to come and they're going to paint your house. So I stopped by the house when they're painting it. And I, I go up on the roof, uh, you know, on this lower roof to say hello and stuff like that. And... One guy's got a beer in his hand, and another, and another, they're smoking and stuff. And I, you know, afterward they all left. I turned to the guy. I said, "There's a beer can on my roof." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And I said, "There's a beer can on my roof. There's no, there's, this isn't happening anymore." And he goes, "Well, tell me what beer it was." And I'm like, "Don't worry about what beer it was." He said, "Well, I need to tell the whoever it was." I said, "You, I've been on installation jobs. You're not drinking beer on my roof." And he said, well, let me go up on your roof. I'm like, you're not going up. No one's going up. I fired the whole crew because it was like this. There were cigarette butts in the gutters. There were cigarette butts on the roof. There was beer cans on the roof. They were drinking. And I'm like, you think I'm, you honestly think I'm going to hire someone to sit on my roof and drink beer? Are you out of your fucking mind? And I'll never forget thinking to myself, I don't know why I even trusted this person to do that. Yep. Fired the whole crew. And so many of the painters are like that. Yeah. And it was one of the reasons why we, you know, we got so big in the area so fast is we only, we had, all our guys are clean cut, very clean cut professional people. And, uh, we tried to maintain that. So, because you got to be able to trust them to put them in your house. So. Oh my God. So you, you get rid of the paint company. You're completely full with the, the, the shop. Now for, for the listener, can you explain the pro, the simple pro, pro, some of these guys aren't knife makers. The difference between using a press and the difference between using a roller for making uh, sand mine in Damascus. Okay, so press, power hammer, roller, all tools used in different stages of the process. So 
For the most part, we use the power hammer uh, for a majority of the work. Initially, we used the presses a lot more because we had presses. It's easier to get a you know 25 ton press than a power hammer that's you know the size of a car. Right. So, based on you know our location and space, we were using more of, more presses, and so the press really to just hydraulic. I don't know how deep you want me to go into how a no, press. No, but works, just but. like if, you don't have to, you go. Just I wanted people to kind of understand. The process of using this equipment to make this deal. Whatever, go whatever you want. So, typically, we make all of our cladding material separate of our of our core material, and so we will stack up all stacks of steel alternating with copper, and we squish all that into a single block and draw it out. And we use the you know the variety there, the press to initially set all the welds, the power hammers to shape the bars into the sizes we need. And then use a rolling mill to basically roll the material to a very uniform thickness, and then that is um, leaves it in an easy state to then take to a grinder, flat clean it up, and then lay it up with its core. And a lot of people didn't realize that we made our cladding material separate and assumed we made it all with the core, the layers, and everything was put together all at once. I I did too. I, I had no idea, but I guess for for production, you have no choice. For production and also for, as you were, we were talking about earlier, quality control. Because we can, if we make the cladding separate, that gives us another step to assess the material while it's cold and while we can still see all the edges and both sides of it um, before it's welded into a core where we can only see one side. And it enables us to precisely grind the, the material and get a good, perfect finish on it so that when it is welded up with the core, we know it's seamless airtight and we don't have to worry about um, issues so it's a little bit of both it's for production reasons but it's, it's also for being able to maintain control of the uh, quality um, it also helps when we're if we have to build a billet out that needs to be very large trying to start from ground zero it's a lot easier if you can start to do a double core and then we could do a double cladding so we're starting with a big old block um, so it enables us to be able to make bigger pieces as well. Um, and especially when you're mixing in copper Damascus and shims, you know, you need to be able to make one separate or the other if you want one higher layer. I mean, there's so many aspects of um, how you can tweak and adjust what you're doing, and it makes the outcome very, very different. And so it's a lot easier for us if we just make the cladding separate and deal with it separately because a lot of our material a lot of our patterns will use the same cladding material at the beginning and so we can make an entire huge batch of copper damascus and then pick and pull from that over the next couple of months in hmm. different steel layouts and different patterns hmm. so um for production reasons that's another reason why we do it um but yeah roll speaking of rolling mills anybody who's got an instagram should go check out our rolling mill. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker engineering your success because we've probably got the biggest rolling mill on the east coast right now it really? is really 
It is massive. Uh, and I, from everybody I've talked to, including Chris Cash, um, they've never seen one bigger than what we've got here. It came out of the Canadian foundries up in Canada. And it was being stored at a, uh, a warehouse by a company, Yoder Machinery, in Ohio. And I found them on the internet. And this was when we are okay, <laughs> I should backpedal. There go we go. ahead. We were in that 3,000 square foot shop with a knife maker, Josh Morgan. We were sharing the space. Um, we had shut the paint company down and we filled that space up super quick uh, with both guys and machines and we were busted into the seams. And in order to keep scaling up the business, we needed more room. And so we were on the hunt for a new space for probably, um, like really on the hunt for probably four or five months. And this area, pretty much everything commercially, commercial shop related is taken and used. There was nothing on the market. It was barren. So we started getting kind of desperate because we needed some new machinery, some bigger machinery, because we had orders coming in. Like we started getting in with uh, Microtech and some of these big knife companies who make a lot of knives and they wanted a lot of material and big orders. And we needed to maintain being able to support the retail, what I call the retail market, which is uh, more hobbyist knife makers and guys working in their own shops who are only buying a bar or two at a time off the website. Right. And being able to support that, but also support the wholesale side where we're wholesaling whole batches to big companies or other companies like um, uh, resellers like Maritime Knife Supply and companies like that over in Europe and stuff. So we were in a pinch because we needed new machines. We didn't have room for it. So we got up with our local... Um, business bureau um well there's a proper name for it now it's drawing a blank um chamber of commerce there chamber. we go okay we got up with the local chamber we joined up with them and said hey we're in desperate need of a new of a new shop and this new shop's going to bring businesses or more jobs to the high country and so they really started working with us we're like hey we're going to get you a building and probably two weeks after talking to them they called us and said hey we got a building so I'm on the other side of town. It's ten thousand square feet, mm. and the, it's not it's not listed currently. But we know the owner, and he's potentially a, he's potentially willing to sell. He wants to meet you. So I said, "All right, here we go." And at first, when he said ten thousand, I mean, it's like that is quadruple what we have now. It's a lot. Know? It's a lot. It's a lot. And so I was like, "All right, let's go meet him." So we went over there and we met him, and the guy loved us. We we showed him our work and what we were doing showed him our videos online and he ate it up he loved it and by the end of our conversation he said make me an offer just here's my uh here's my broker's number call him up and make an offer because i'd be willing to sell the building to you even though it wasn't on the market and he was not wanting or not trying to sell it at all <laughs> and so we made an offer and we went under contract the uh, two weeks after that so wow wow yeah it it went fast but and the move was, oh my gosh. You know, I hate moving houses. I moved a lot as a kid. I hate moving shops worse. <laughs> Moving's it's, no good. Why did you move all, why did, what made you move all the time when you were a kid? Well, I always would tell people, people would always ask if I was in, if my dad was in the military, based on how much we moved. But he, well, we weren't. He was in telecom. And it just, the jobs he would take, and he was always... Uh, scaling up into other to higher up industry and 
that that's a whole that might be even a whole other podcast. Dad Dad is a uh, a crazy dude. He did a lot of stuff, and he just was always we were always moving around. And he was mm-hmm. always he was a CEO of a big tech company back in the day, and um, we were, seemed to be always moving. I had by the time I was sixteen, I had moved seventeen times. So that's a, that's insane. It is insane. It might as well have been a military brat. <laughs> that's more than Chris Cash. Chris Cash, when I had him on, he said he moved all the time because his, his family was in the military, but not 17 times by the time he was 16. Yeah, it was a lot. And wow. so I never I never really got... And well, and because of that, well, for a multitude of reasons, I was homeschooled. I, I didn't go to the public school or, or anything like that. Um, and so moving around, never really got attached to anything or, you know, any community really just because we were always on the go um but yeah moved a lot and so i hate moving with a passion i i i tend to think that that also provides you with this ability to not be to be relatively fearless of change because when you if you're if you're so and it's not like you're used you're used to it when you're when you're changing where you live 17 times in 16 years and then you don't have that ability to be attached to things. Maybe you're a little bit more flexible in your decisions, and it makes you a little bit more, I mean, brave. Because you're every time you're someone's telling you we're going to move now, you're like, okay, well, you know, this is the fifteenth time. Okay, I know what to do. I know. What, so you get you're a little bit more fearless in in that regards. Because obviously, obviously, when you're a child, you, when your parents saying you're going to move, you obviously don't know where you're going to go. You don't know if you're right. going to make new friends. You don't know the, what the place is like, and you just you just handle it. And I would think that that was a really important part of you being able to say, okay, listen, we're going to sell the paint company, we're going to start the steel company, and then now we're going to buy this giant building and. I think well, that you know, it probably gave you a background in a little bit of fearlessness. That is an interesting perspective, and one I had not thought of before. Um, because I always, I always feel like I'm a person of routine, and I, I am very much on a most a daily basis. I have a very set routine, and I like my routine, and I don't like my routine to change. And so, in my head, I always was like, I'm a person who hates change, and in some regards, I am. But but you're right. I think in the right times if the the fearlessness there is a little bit of that because i'm i'm not a huge risk taker but if it's a calculated risk i will always go for it but in the the maker community there is a a real fear and a lot of it's the fear of failure and Mm -hmm. of the and there a lot of people are fear afraid of we get on knife talk i mean you you have no idea we get i could do a whole sociology dissertation in regards to the mindset of of uh, hobbyist knife makers wanting to become professional knife makers. There's a fear of like, oh, I got this job and I got this, I got this paycheck, but I don't love it, but I could make knives and I could be my own boss, but I might not want to have to work as hard. And there's a, there's a ton of like fear of, of the unknown that people aren't prepared for. And there are guys like you who have, I think an, an innate and Chris Cash is the same way. I feel like there's this, feeling of you don't no one has to like change but you're not opposed to it sure sure yeah i i would agree it yeah you've you've got you've got my head spinning now because i always thought i was a person who hated change no 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 no. (laughs) i think that i think that we we see we got to see things from the macro level not the micro level i mean day to day i don't i like i'm very set in my routines as well like i i mean like you want to talk about routines i'm up at 4 30 
I'm helping get my wife out the door for to go to the hospital at five. I'm on the Peloton by before by six. I'm walking the dogs. I have to be at the shop before seven, like seven forty-five. I have to, you know, I, I'm I love discipline and routine, and I most likely am far more f- afraid. I don't know if I'm 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 fearless or not. I don't know if I'm fearless or not because um, I'm becoming more comfortable with the unknown. I mean, I'm much more uh, zen about you know, like I'm not I don't I'm not as uh, ang- anxious about things as I used to be. Sure, and I think you know confidence is found during the process. You know, if you were following down this path and. Um, even though you're at the beginning, you'll be like, I hate this change. I, I'm not, you know, lots of worry, unknown. You're com- as you go down the road, you become familiar with the process and whatever you're doing, you can get, you'll gain confidence in it. And I think that's where a lot of um, what got us to where we're at now is as it, we just started growing larger and larger and I setting up this organization, I be- got more and more confident and was like, you know what? I'm I'm in my zone. I've got good people around me. I've got good people in place who are doing aspects of the business that are way better at it than I was. I w- I'm a huge proponent of if you're not good at something, you need to hire somebody to do it for you who will do it well. <clears throat> and so I think that's given me a lot of confidence to be where we're set up now is where we're in a good place with having those people in place around us. And that, that helps give me confidence. So you move into this giant space, you got everything squared away, and are you immediately taking on orders from companies like Microtech? Or, and then when you do a company like, when a, micro, when a Microtech, which is a giant American business, when America, I believe they're American business. Oh yeah, they're in Asheville. They're like an hour from me, actually. <laughs> oh, so when they call you up, how, do they ask for the steel to be a specific dimension and weight or thickness, or or oh, do yes. they just say send it to me and it's, just send it to me and we'll take care of the rest? No, it's very specific. Um, so I met Tony Marfione. He's the owner of Microtech at Blade Show twenty twenty one, I believe, and. I met him through his son. His son had seen what we were doing on Instagram, and he introduced me at Blade Show. And Tony is a character. He's an awesome guy. He's a funny guy. And he immediately, <laughs> his first line to me was, I really like what you're doing. You make some awesome material. How much would it cost for you to make steel only for me for the rest of the year? And that was in June, of course, when Blade Show happens. Mm. And I was shocked. Um, and he said, no, I'm serious. And he pulled out his checkbook. He said, how much right now for you to only make steel for me for the rest of the year? And I said, well, I don't, I've got a lot of people who, you know, like buying our steel and a lot of makers that we support who support themselves through our stuff. So, uh, I'd love to have your business, but I can't really do it that way. Um, but we'd be happy to make you a batch of steel. And he said, all right, put me down. I'll, uh, I want these sizes. I want them. I want these patterns and I want this many of them. Here's the number for my uh, accountant, and uh, you, could, you can work it out with him, money stuff. So that's how that relationship started, and it's been a great one. He's ordered a, a lot of steel, and yes, they specifically want very specific sizes because these guys are making autos. They're you know out the fronts and folders, and so their tolerances are crazy tight, and they want them at a very specific dimension. And so that was where we really learned about um, doing volume at a very precise level. So 
it's one thing to make a bunch of steel and have it rolled within a certain tolerance, and it's another to make a batch of steel for a company like this who's going to lock the bar into a CNC mill and mill very precise components out of it. Hmm. Um, we sent them some test pieces, and I believe this was the I believe this was Microtech. Um, they sent them back, and they were. I don't remember what the tolerance was off the top of my head now. They were out of tolerance by just a little bit, but it was enough to where it was a problem for them. And they said, we need to adjust this before we run the batch because these aren't going to work. And I was like, I mean, I don't remember how it was, 15, 20 thou maybe. And I was like, that's a crazy tolerance. I don't know how in the world we're going to hold this. And so he should go back to the drawing board and we make a crap load of steel and some of it, if it doesn't make tolerance, it gets set aside. And so... Batches for those guys, um, we'll have, you know, we'll make, let's just say, 100 bars, but we'll also have, like, 40 or 50 bars on the side that didn't make tolerance. And now that gets to go to the retail market because wow. there's a lot bigger, you know, tolerance you, range there. Are you milling stuff, or is it, this is everything you send to uh, Microtech is coming off the roller? Uh, it comes off the roller, but then we f uh, flat grind it. So they were having us flat grind, um, on a, on a Blanchard grind. Or not a Blanchard, sorry. This was before we had the Blanchard. This was just on what's a... What's uh, a Blanchard? Okay, so a Blanchard is basically a bit big flat grinder. It's got a table okay. that's a magnetic uh, chuck, basically. So it okay. magnetically holds the steel to the table, and it spins. And then that spinning table is then run up under a spinning head, okay. which and the head has all the stones in it, and it can flat grind a big volume batch of steel all in one go. I see. I see. And that's what we use now. We didn't have that in the old shop. It's one of the machines we really need to add badly. Um, and we have that in the new building now. And I have an employee who I hired and trained on that. And his job only, that is all he does day in, day out, is run that Blanchard grinder. <laughs> so it flood coolant across the whole table. We've got a couple of videos up on it. I think it's somewhere... I, while you were talking, I did see that that rolling mill is is pretty incredible. If you go to Baker Forge and Tool on Instagram, you can see all the steel that we're talking about. And you can see all the equipment and and one of the things that Koi does. What? Why? Should, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to. Them. I, one of the things about <laughs> podcasting I hate is when you turn to the audience and start talking to them. That drives me bananas. Right. I my opinion on podcasting is you and I should have a conversation, and my job is to make it interesting for the listener, not. Right me turning to the listener and say, hey, listener, that's some bullshit. So I apologize for that. No, no, go for it. But a, no problem. I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you've really, I mean, it's very clear. I think that there's a lot of people of a certain amount of time who's, who has spent on social media who have realized the importance and the value of that consistent content. At what point did you think, because your content changed because it became far more compelling it, it, rem it had, and don't take this the wrong way, it reminded me kind of like uh, Orange County Choppers a little bit in the sense of like, you're, <laughs> is that an insult? No. All right, good. Because I know, I know that they're, they're known for making, I knew, I knew, I, I worked at the shop not too far from them and the stories about how lousy the, the choppers were, 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 I mean, there was the, you hear these stories all the time. But the what the fascinating part about uh, Orange County Choppers was is they really kind of talked to the employees and then they it was it was compelling to kind of understand who these people are who are making these choppers. One of the things that I like about what you're doing is is you really kind of like you're you're really keeping your employees part of the show, part of 
I mean, I've said at the show, it seems as though you're kind of creating this, like, you know, this show and showing people the different people who are making the steel. When did we mm-hmm. decide to do this kind of that type of content? So that came around when I brought on a social media manager. Um, so we've the media team is comprised of four people now, and one of whom is me, partially. And then we've got uh, Waylon. He's our videographer and editor. Uh, he works full-time in the shop um, doing just video and uh, uh, photo work. And then John is a... He's my social media manager. So he manages everything from a higher level. Basically, what the plan is with media campaigns, um, what markets we're trying to target. Um, he runs the Twitter and the Facebook and all that as well, and some of the Instagram. Um, and so... When we started putting, when I started putting together a media team, it was I need this off my plate. I'm not good at taking video or photo on my phone. That's how I used to do it, and it takes way too much time. Um, I needed to get that off my plate um, because I had other stuff I needed to focus on. And when you're trying to scale a business, you know, if you're not, if you hate doing something, you got to hire it out. So I brought on Waylon to help with taking the content and editing it, and that was just it so much better just oh it opened my time up and the content immediately got better and then we brought john on and he helps with the big picture and he works directly with Waylon on a day-to-day basis for putting all that together and it allows me to be able to step out of that and get some other stuff done <clears throat> and not have to be constantly worrying about it because there's a lot of media around this business we yeah. uh you know started out on instagram started on social media and so we don't really sell too much of a local community. We don't have a storefront. So right. Instagram and social media is our business. And so um, getting back to the the type of content, uh, John always wanted to make sure that we didn't become this corporatized look in the community, this big company who nobody, you know, it's just very artificial, just standard, basic, boring posts. Getting Didn't want to get that commercial look to us. And wanted to stay professional but also stay connected with our community and part of that was fully humanizing the back end of baker forge and how things are done and who and all's here and what who's doing what and what the personalities are behind each employee because when you when you showcase those personalities the people can not only connect to to you or me in the case but they're also connecting to the whole story and the purchasing of Baker Forge material to the people who are now making it as well. And so that was a big push uh, starting, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, I guess, um, was doing those videos where, you know, we were interviewing the guys, asking them, you know, it started off silly, basic questions. Yeah. Um, who and we a fight between chickens and children. <laughs> right, right. And it's humorous, you know. At the yeah. time, it was more of just to humanize the guys, get them to get them on the on the camera, meet the crew of Baker Forge, and after doing that for a couple of months, we then went to Blade Atlanta. Um, I think this was twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, one of those two, and all the crew came because that's within driving distance of us. And so the entire crew came down, and we just we didn't have a table or a booth. We just walked the show, and I go to every show, but all the guys. This was our first time going. And so many people walked up to my guys and were like, hey, you're the guys, you're the guy who likes 
whatever, you know, right. recognizing them from those videos. And so many of those people come up and say, hey, we love how you do those videos. They're so funny. you got to keep doing more. And so the community's response to it was really, really great. And the guys, my employees felt so appreciated at the show when people were walking up to them and going, hey, I know exactly who you are. You don't know who I am, but I know who you are because I watch you on Baker Forge's page all the time. And they felt appreciated for the work they do, you know, because it's hard work. It's grueling. Yeah. Well, they look, <clears throat> they look like, I can only imagine if you're one guy's working that, uh, that grinder all day long. I mean, I would imagine that every single person has a specific job and it's very <clears throat> monotonous to a certain degree. In in some respects, yes. That so that hiring that guy for the Blanchard actually goes against, or at the time went against my theme for how I had structured the employees. So for anybody who was working in the shop, I always wanted everybody to be able to do every position, whether it's grinding, forging, welding, assembly, any of that. I always wanted the guys to be able to do all of it. Um, and sure, sure, some guys lean towards. Uh, one or the other, they're, maybe they're more skilled at one or the other, and they just prefer working in this certain area more than the other areas. And so we would accommodate that, and some people ended up in more niche areas, and it, it flowed very, very well. But the Blanchard, once we put that into our process, um, it became a full-time job for one person to do. And it's... <laughs> The Blanchard ended up on the machine shop side of our building. So our building split kind of into two sections. And the forging areas are on one end, one corner end. And then the other side is our machine shop side where the lathes and mills and drill presses and grinders and stuff are all at. And it just, with the current layup, it fit more to have one guy running that. And we had to have so much ground all day that it took one guy all day to do it. And so, out of need, we brought in somebody to just do that. But yeah. long term, I still plan on him learning how to do all the other steps because I think the interchangeability of skill is important in a business. So, I don't mean to change directions, but I would be, I would be a horrible host <laughs> if I didn't ask you about Gator Piss. Yes. I want to know, <clears throat> how did this... The whole idea, because I have some stories, but uh, from the, how did the whole idea of Gator Piss? And if you're not, if you're listening to this and you're saying, "What the fuck is Gator Piss?" You, the, you, when you're when you're grinding pattern welded steels, and you're trying to uh, etch them in a way that the high carbon steel is the silver steel, and the dark steel is the high carbon steel, you need some. There's a, there's people use ferric chloride with water. And then what will happen is the, the high nickel steel will be, uh, will be repelled by the, uh, the ferric chloride doesn't work on the high nickel steel. The high carbon steel gets eaten away and it turns black and then that's what gives you what uh, Damascus looks like. So there are different people who have different recipes for how they mix their, because you can't do straight ferric. You, you know, Mareco has all sorts of different things, but you decided to create your own pre-mixed etchant. Take it away. So... This started, let's see, we launched in December of 2022, so probably summertime of 2022. We realized there was a need in the market, and all good products come out of a need. Um, and so 
people were etching our materials and some people were doing great at it and some people really struggled with etching our materials and one of those things is you've got copper in there and so copper if etched too heavily or too much wants to what we call copper bleed and it kind of deposits copper all down the blade and it kind of messes it up makes it look funky and in general a lot of people seem to struggle in the etching area especially newer makers um, etching is one of those things where it's almost different for everybody and you kind of have to find your own process and so in one of our meetings you know it was we're talking new products and whatnot and we started throwing around the idea of you know an etchant what if we could make an etchant that would work super well for everybody across the board where they didn't have to develop a process from scratch or try to mix this into that or try to boil vinegar or whatever she's like what if it was a, an already done product that they could open the bottle pour it into a container and throw a knife in and get going and we thought it was a great idea but none of us make knives anymore and so we don't etch anything and so we're like well you don't really have a good hold on that industry in that market and so it kind of fell by the wayside for a little bit but it was kind of always in the back of my head and then I was talking with one of my good buddies, Grayson, from Gray Blades. And he's been a long-time user of our material. And he had really been developing beautiful etches. And one, of the day, one day I just asked him, I was like, hey, so what are you etching in? Because this is amazing work and some of the best etches I've ever seen. What are you etching in? And he said, oh, well, it's just this little concoction I made up, and I call it Gator Piss. And I was like, you call it what? He's like, I call it gator piss. And he showed me, I was on a video call with him, he showed me the container of this yellowish, sort of greenish looking liquid that looked like Gatorade almost. And he's like, I call it gator piss. I was like, that's an interesting name. I was like, what's, what's in it? And he told me what was in it. And it was this proprietary concoction that he just developed uh, on his own. And I was like, well... I've, I, we've actually been talking about taking a, a, a commercial etchant to market. Um, you mind uh, sending me uh, sending me that recipe and let me mix some up over here and see what what, what looks like and uh, well, how it does. And after some back and forth, um, I was like, you know what? I've really been thinking about this gator piss thing, and I've got my mind completely wrapped around how this would be marketed. And I think the marketing on it is genius, and the name is genius. So I said, I'm proposing something. I want to buy the name from you. And so we and buy the so we we ended up buying the name and sort of the mixture. We ended up changing the mixture after where he he came on. He's a contractor for us for the Gator Piss stuff now. And we ended up at changing the mixture um, before we launched it. We we made some changes to it and added some things and made it a little bit better. But it was all in all kind of his brainchild from back in the day that he was just using on his own in his garage and he had told anybody about it but it was it was genius and so we ended up buying that from him and part of that deal was he also kind of comes on and he he was a part of the gator piss brand um <laughs> it's so still... funny when you talk about it like that it is very funny we you can't not laugh yeah. as part he came on as part of the gator piss brand well, it, it did, and there's there's a lot still coming in the Gator Piss brand arena, uh, product-wise, that has been in the works for quite a while. And um, 
there's a lot of cool stuff coming out with that because the gator piss etchant is just the surface of what can be done in that area and we spent a long time on the logo and um figuring out exactly what we wanted that branding to look like and the color schemes of it and oh boy when once we started putting that out there uh let's see so that's one of the only products i ever took a pre-order on speaking of hating pre-orders earlier i didn't know how to gauge the interest so i knew i was going to in order to buy some of these components you needed to buy them in bulk to get them at a decent you know price point right and so I was like, I don't know how much to order, or how much of this to get, or how many bottles to plan on. I don't, you know, and I, at the time I was a little bit hesitant on the name because, like, it's a little crass. And I understand it's a little crass. It's a, it's a lot crass. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's straight crass. It's, it's all straight crass, crass. Baby. It's straight crass, Koi. Straight I know. crass. I know. And, I, you know, we were a little more of a clean-cut business at the time. And I was like, you know, I don't know how well this is going to go over. <laughs> And so I was just like, we're gonna we're gonna go for it, but we're gonna have to do a pre-order because I don't want to overdo this and end up with a ton of stock I can't sell. Right. So I was like, we're gonna do a pre-order. We're gonna limit it. Uh, we're only gonna let it run. I think we decided we're gonna let it run one whole week and see how many orders we could take in a, in a week. And so we put together a marketing campaign, filmed YouTube videos, the whole nine yards. We brought flew Grayson out from Wyoming at the time and brought him in for the videos and we launched it and i had to close it down the following day and capped it at 350 gallons in less than 24 hours oh my God. because it took off and i stopped it because i was like you know what i don't I, I don't know if we can fulfill 350 gallons we definitely can't do more than that and so because we're still in this little at the time the little 3,000 square foot shop space and this stuff takes a lot of space big drums of water and acids and pallets of bottles and boxes like it's a whole ordeal um and so we went to work putting that together and doing a whole production run of it and fulfilled those uh 350 orders in i think we fulfilled it in two weeks as huh. the minimum i was like i can't i don't want to overextend myself so whether this is as many as we're taking and then we of course made another batch and stocked it and have kept it in stock since um, what was the what was the initial response to the name? I've uh, almost everybody loved it, um, and you know it's interesting because initially we hit up a couple of the more uh, some of the higher I don't know I'm, I probably shouldn't name drop some of the some bigger people in the industry about it to see if we could get some into their hands earlier. Uh, to help build steam behind the marketing campaign, and they didn't want any part several of, it. of them didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's because of the name. I guess I kind of saw that coming. I was like, so let's just let it go naturally, and see how it goes. And of course, without fail, every single one of those people on that list ordered a bottle within the following year after seeing it on social media so much. I remember when it first came out, and I got a call from Ben Snoor, and he said to me, you hear about this gator piss the boys down at Picker Forge are making? And I said, yeah, I have. And he says, what do you think? I said, I mean, if it works, who gives a shit what the name of it is? I said, the name's funny, and it makes me laugh. But other than that, you know, I don't 
Mark, my customer doesn't need to know everything that I'm using on their knife. And I'll tell you some funny stories. I did talk to a couple other big guys who were just like, I'm, I can't even, I can't tell my customer. You know, I'm making them a $3,000 knife. I can't tell them I'm using gator pisses. It makes me feel like it makes, it makes, but the, the interesting thing was they all said how great it works. Right. And I said the same thing. It's like, if, it, if the name was gator piss and it sucked, that'd be one thing. The fact remains is the fucking stuff is awesome. And it's like, I'm shocked. I use it on Damasteel. The Damasteel guys, I don't know if you've gotten any messages from them. They started messaging me about talking to you about it. And I think they're going to get some from DIY Europe. They want to get some information. But it works on the Damasteel. It works on everything. And it works very well. And the instructions are very good. I had awesome. a, I did a, <clears throat> but I did it, I did an Instagram live. Uh, two funny things happened. One is, is like, I always feel like my customers and then the knife talk and full blast worlds will never collide. And then they're, they're, they're always colliding. And I always have to like <laughs> explain myself. So I was doing an Instagram live and I was talking about gator piss. And then some big knife makers were saying, I don't want to use that stuff. I don't. I, I don't like the name, and they got the name's no good, and the name's no good. And, and I said, "What do you care about the name? Are you going to tell your customers everything?" I'm like, "What do you care? The stuff is unbelievable." And after, and and then the so then after that Instagram live, I got two messages. One was from the guy who who said the name's no good. He sent me a picture of a gallon of fucking gator piss in his shop. <laughs> so it's like he doesn't like the name, but he bought. Trust me. And I started to say that on the on the ad reads is like. You don't have to like the name, but I know you have it, and you're going to get it. And right. then the other thing was I had a customer who was listening to that uh, uh, Instagram live, and they said, is it possible that my knife can be used with a gator piss? And it was just like, <laughs> it was hilarious. It was just like, well, you know, you bought stainless steel, so no, but right. next time right. next time, work something else out. But it was funny because they were just like, I want to know what this gator piss. Will my knife have gator piss with it? So, I mean, it's just, it is... I, I think I said something. I know that Mareko says, well, if you don't, he said on a knife talk, something like that. He says, well, if you don't feel comfortable, just call it Gator Etch. I'm like, look, the name's Gator Piss. What are you worried about? You don't have to tell your customers everything. You know, they're, trust me, right. they're not going to, they don't care. But right. I mean, it, the fact remains is nobody is talking about etching like Gator Piss. Nobody. Nobody this talks about etching. So it's like, it's it really is, a, a, it is a, an incredible marketing idea it's it's a it was a fucking gamble coy <laughs> i know it was it was yeah, really you i mean yeah you put it all in i mean you, that was a, like a real <laughs> that is that was one of the incredible gambles of all time decided well, to go was, with gator piss there's there's kind of two gambles there because you've got the gamble on the name but the gamble yeah. can go either way because i knew it was going to stir up conversation and I, oh. I knew that was good for marketing but it it could easily go the wrong direction very quickly. And if nobody it was no good, it. if it wasn't good... That's true. If it wasn't it any would good... Have, <laughs> it would have ruined you. It would have ruined you. That is true. Because it, 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 it would have had people not really trust you. That is true. Now, I didn't ever have to worry really about it not being good because seeing what it was, what it was doing with Grayson's work, I was like, this is yeah. freaking magic. Of course. And I'd never seen anything like it before. And so... Um, I wasn't really concerned about it not working all that well. What I did not uh, foresee, and I totally didn't see this coming, was what I mean, it was. You brought it to my attention on one of your podcasts when you first started talking about it. Was what your customer would think if you if they saw you using it, and it had never crossed my mind that a knife maker would be worried. 
that a customer wouldn't want their knife in a product called Gator Piss. And because uh, we market this towards a knife maker, we're not marketing it right. towards a knife buyer. Right. But well, obviously, but and it's, it didn't it, cross my mind that that would be an issue. And I was when you mentioned that on there, I was like, oh shit, uh, that might it, be a problem. But that's why I started to do the whole. Don't tell them every. You don't have to tell them everything. You gotta. You gotta tell everybody everything. And you I know, guess I assumed that knife makers didn't tell a customer what they're etching in. Here's mean, the funny thing about knife makers. Here's the funny thing about knife makers. Knife makers are very, very sensitive. They're very, <laughs> very sensitive. And the price of their work is also firmly attached to their ego. Mm. And it's also firmly attached to their despair and their disappointment and their <laughs> feelings about themselves, usually bad. So if you're trying to sell something for $1,500, which is a lot, it's like you want to make sure that your customers don't think you're playing. So that's why a lot of them get nervous because they're just like, I'm charging this person this ridiculous amount of money, but then I have this jokey product name, so I have to be concerned. That's where it comes from. But at the same time, I mean... It working is, I mean, it's ridiculous how good it works. And it's like nobody's, nobody's, everyone's buying. Every, I know most of the knife makers I know are using Gator Piss. And well, it's I, mean, because, I mean, Salem Straw, if Salem Straw does a video about how good Gator Piss is, that wipes the deck. I mean, that's it. It's mm-hmm. over. The story's over. You don't have to worry anymore. I mean, you're talking about the best knife maker in the country saying that this is the stuff to use. Who cares what the name is? Right. For sure. And, it, it took a little while for some of the bigger guys to get on board with it, and for obvious reasons. Um, but it has been one of the biggest sellers for us, you know, hands down. And we have it in; it can be distributed now in every country except Australia right now. We're still working on that one, but other than that, it is worldwide. So wow, yeah, worldwide. You have it in Asia. Oh yeah, it's in Asia, Africa. It's in Africa. It's in South America. Holy uh, shit. Gator Piss is taking over. How hilarious is it? How hilarious is it that you're making a product named Gator Piss and it's global? It's global. I know. Of all the products. The best part part is anyone outside of the United States does not know what a gator is. I know. And there's another thing I didn't know. You know, I didn't really think about was international people not knowing (laughs) what a gator is. That's even better. That's why, that's when I first, when you started sending me a message saying that, oh yeah, DIY Europe selling gator piss. I would say, don't worry. They don't know what gators are over now. They don't even know what an alligator (laughs) is over in Europe. Yep. Yep. God damn. That's so funny. It was, it's been a ride. And I, uh, you know, I, every time I listen to your podcast and I listen to it every week, I just, I chuckle every time you do the ad read because it's so funny. Oh, it's, you know what? It is such a joy to be able to fuck around because mm-hmm. the problem is, is if you start to do straight, I, I listen to, I, now I listen to sports radio all the time because I'm fascinated by the chemistry of the, of the, the, the hosts, but I'm also, I like the way they do their ads. Sometimes people do ads and they make it sound like they're meant to be. But the best part, the best guys like uh, Howard Stern and Don Imus used to fuck around. You know, they would just fuck around with the bits. They would fuck around with the ads. And it was like, it made it so much more fun and a better better ad read. So, like, I just go, I love it. I, and the fact that I, in my mind, I was like, all right, if he's selling gator piss, I'm going to sell some gator piss and we're going to make some, <laughs> we're going to have some jokes. But, I, oh. yeah, those are my favorite, those are my favorite, uh, 
those are my favorite reads because I know that you you don't mind me uh, going hard in the paint, but uh, it's oh, uh, yeah. light it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. But at the same time, like the, the you know you get to the point where between knife talking and, and um, full blast, you know you you really I I very feel very strongly about our sponsors, and I really want to make sure that I you know I'm not just hucking something that that, that I don't really believe in, and I'm amazed. Like I said, the steel that you've sent me, you've sent me a variety of steel. All of it always comes out beautifully, and I'm always amazed. I would have one request, one hey. request. Sometimes the 330 seconds, you really don't give me a lot of room with the, to, to make a mistake with the core. That's oh, the only. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only thing, and I, and I, and I, and I, but part of me is just like, what do I want? What do I want? I need I need core to Koi to do this for me. But sometimes I, there was one knife I was just like, that core's coming soon. I can see I, this, that core's going to come soon. I can tell. <laughs> the other thing is, and, and this is something I'm trying to tell uh, stock removal guys, because of the copper, it makes grinding so much easier because you don't have to etch it to see wherever the fuck everything is. Right. That's like. I mean that's like that's like uh, train. It's not training wheels, but it's like you have like a you have a you can you can tell where you, when your core is going to come. There's no mistaking where the core is. Right, right. And uh, let me touch on the core thing there. So we and I think we're finally in a good spot now. But especially uh, at the end of us being in the old shop and in the transition to the new shop, um, we had we've been playing we're playing around a lot with core ratio and pattern depth. Because you want to get a lot of patterning in there. Because right. you don't want all the patterning to come off when they're cleaning the billet up. Um, you don't want it to look boring. The pattern needs to be pushed into the core some. But then you can't have it cross the edge. So there's a right. balance there. And finding that good balance in a production environment is fun and challenging. And so we played around with a couple of... Where, where we were changing things was at what thickness the bar was at before we started putting the pattern in with the patterning dies. And if the bar is thinner, you, of course, can only push the pattern so deep. And so there's there's room to finagle that around and, and get some different looks in the bars. And so it's just taken a lot of time to really nail that down specifically. And I know there's, you know, every once in a while, a customer get a bar and the pattern's just a little too deep and they can't really get the edge to come out. Um, and, of course, you know, we take care of those customers. Customer service is one of our biggest areas where I really push to be the best as best as we can be. So that's that's an unsung important thing. However, I never I I always I always like it because I'm just like, I'm getting close. Better get off the grinder, better go to the disc grinder. I know when I bump down to the two twenty I'm gonna make that core. I'm just a little bit more on this side, just a little bit more on that side, and I never miss. But it's funny because that totally think to myself, I'm like Koi really didn't give me a lot. Of, I don't know. It's a. It's it's gonna be hard to land this airplane on this airstrip. This airstrip is. This is a fucking tight airstrip right here. I don't have much to go. Sure, but well, you know it, it happens. And I I'm excited to get you some of this newer stuff because uh, you thought that last stuff was pretty. And when you pull these out, these bars out of a box, and they are blanchard clean and they are smooth and pretty. They are so much better looking now than they used to be. One of the guys, one of the things about your steel, um, and we're going to have to wrap this up, unfortunately, soon, but one of the things about your steel is it gives sculptors the opportunity to really take it. What I try to do is I want to take advantage of the steel. And you have one of the knife makers who makes just amazing. 
your work, you're not, your steel becomes a very important part to his design. His, his name is JB Blade 7550 yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, Jordan. Yep. He, what he does is he'll carve these, like, these, um, I don't want to say the word squiggle, but he, he carves these lines <laughs> into the face. Yep. And then he relieves the inside, so you have this almost like this serpentine pattern raised out of the, the knife. I, it's not a trust me; it is not like a food release situation, but it is probably one of the smartest and most elegant ways to really highlight your steel. Yes, for sure. And a little background there: we work closely with with Jordan. Um, he and I became friend, friends. Oh. You know, a long time ago, he started using our steels, and I loved his process with that relief carving, where he's you know creating a little bit of a raised ridge down the blade. Like a ridge, yeah, that's a raised ridge. And what's crazy is if you ever get to see his knives in person, you realize just how subtle it actually is, and the way he carves it in the photos makes it stand out like crazy, but it's almost barely there. Huh. It is very, very unique because most people think, oh, that's a huge ass, you know, divot and yeah. big old raise. It is so subtle, it's crazy. Um, but it, because he's taking advantage of the topographical nature of the of the material. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, and in my uh, mind, I'm thinking he's using a right angle grinder. Oh, no. no. He uses rotary tools. Oh my God! I'm thinking to myself, I'm like my boy's getting a flap disc. <laughs> He's putting in some, oh, no. <laughs> putting in some dip, the dips. But now that you say it's so thin, a rotary tool. I got vault. It's like a. He's using like a Dremel. It's it's a Dremel. He calls it something else. It's a higher end Dremel or something. I'm, I'm not sure. He doesn't actually teach that either or show people how he does. Yeah, it. Yeah, don't it. don't trust me. Yeah, trust me, Jordan. If you're listening to this, keep that shit to yourself. These knife makers are fucking thieves. I mean, yeah. it is ridiculous. You teach them how to do it, man. You're 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 done. You're done. You're gonna figure something out. You have to have like a a different type of squiggle because because these motherfuckers will take from you, Jordan. I'm talking yeah. to you, Jordan. Don't let them. <laughs> don't teach anybody how to do it. I'm telling you, it's a mis huge mistake. Well, we uh we set up with him early on to uh, make test blades for us because you know our steel doesn't you know it's just in a, a bar form. It doesn't uh, doesn't show the pattern. It really needs to be made into something for you to see what the material is inside and out. And so we partnered up with Jordan, and we send him a bar of every pattern we make ahead of time, and he makes a blade out of it, and then sends it back to us for to use for marketing. Huh. Um, we then ship the knife back to him, and he can sell it to somebody to make his money. But. Um, yeah, we have an agreement, a partnership deal with him where he makes all the test plays. That's why if you go to our website and you look at all our steel, it's uh, it's all showcased on knives that he's made. So wow. Well, it's great that you're using you know small small guys because it really does put you know talking about like you wanted the face of the company to be more like everyday, every person like not a corporate environment. The fact that you're working with these makers like the guy who created uh the gator piss and then working with jordan it's it's really amazing yeah we love working with people in our community um i've got i've got another guy right now who just he just works in his garage and he's testing some new stuff for us huh. um he and i became friends on instagram and um yeah i'm having him test some new fancy stuff <laughs> very cool well tell me what's next for baker forge tell me what's next for you What's going on? So let's see. The biggest thing coming down the pipe is we're going to start stepping into the stainless realm. Oh, uh, yeah. People must. have been 
asking about it or asking for it for a long That's time. That's the future. It's the future. Uh, and we're starting that right now with stainless core uh, copper mine. So putting, having the beauty of carbon, but the performance of stainless. That's our tagline. That is, I cannot tell you. On knife talk, every so often we'll say, what do, you, what do we all talk? What do you think the future is for knife making? And I, we always come down to stainless Damascus because it's like people love the Damascus, but they don't want the change. They don't mm -hmm. want it to patina. They, when you start telling them that most people who buy Damascus, a good portion of them have no idea what they're getting themselves into. Right. A good portion of them. More than a quarter have no idea. You know, Even you tell them a hundred times, they still don't know. Exactly. Stainless Damascus is the fucking future. No question about it. Yeah, and we're going to put it together with our classic copper, of course, oh. and traditional baker form, forge form. Um, we will be limited to which stainlesses because the austenitizing temperature has to be under the melting temperature of copper. Right. And some of those stainlesses get way up there. So. Well, that's got to be tricky because, I mean, like AEBL and, and 440C, they're all around 1950. Right, which is, which is like 20 degrees under melting temp. <laughs> yeah, you can get 440C, you can get 1900. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've got some tests right now, and I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the full blast podcast, so we'll, we'll just throw it all out there. We're not announcing anything on the Instagram okay. yet, but um, we should have stainless core copper my rolling out um, early summer in wow. Nitro -V, Nitro V and AEBL. Wow. Yep. Wow, that's big news. Possibly that's sooner than news. that. It depends. Tests are going really well, so we'll see. But we've been in testing with this for I don't know, coming on two months now. So that's huge news. Yeah, that's great. I'm really happy for you because it's going to change your it's going to change your whole business because there are so many more people now, especially makers, who are getting. I mean, I've only been I've, I use 95% stainless only because. My customers are usually first-time knife buyers, and they're just they want what they're used to. So, right. like, I will be all over that stainless Damascus. You, oh, you know I'm, I'm gonna get you a couple bars up there for sure. Oh, you kidding me? That's unbelievable. That is the future. You know what? One of the things about you in general is I, I, you have you're very forward-thinking, and this is something that, like I said, we've been talking for the past year about the you know what's people ask us what's gonna be the newest thing, and we're always like. That's why we do well with with Damasteel. Damasteel is awesome stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to get in the United States, but and it's very expensive. But it is a dynamite steel, and <clears throat> guys in Europe are using it all the time, uh, and they're killing with it. And I, it, when you have it and have the ability to not worrying about patina, that's a fucking monster. It's a monster move. That's a huge move for sure. And we're going to eventually uh, get into full stainless Damascus as well without the copper. Um, We've got. Yeah, we've been doing some tests on that as well. Uh, but nobody but first, does it with the copper. Nobody does things with copper. Damn. I know. I know. Look at you. Look at you, Koi Baker. What else? Anything else? You want to drop some bombs on me? That is. That's a major bomb. Love it. It, it is a major. We, You're not going to do fader piss, right? We're not no. doing that. Right? <laughs> I did threaten to do that to you, didn't I? Uh, somebody no. said to me. Somebody said to me. Uh, Steven, my our good listener, Hey Budden, said, "You know, you got to talk to Koi and have him make fader piss." I'm like, I, people don't like me as it is. <laughs> a, people don't like me as it is. I, that's the last thing I need for my ego. Like, oh, no, no surprise. That fucking asshole's got his own pr pr proprietary engine called fader piss. Oh God, I just don't need it. 
Oh no, no, we're not, we're not doing fader piss, but good. Thank um, you. We've got a bunch of stuff in the works. Let's see. Um, nothing else really. I think that I'm comfortable going ahead and getting into yet. There's just right. too much development to happen. Um, we do but have good some, stuff. We got some really wide bars coming out. I've had a majority or a, a handful of companies wanting to do axes out of our material. Oh, I'm not surprised. And so I've got some stock that we actually just got in Friday um, that is going to allow us to be making some six and seven inch wide plates um, out of copper mine. So, so that's some, and I say plates because at that point you're not, it's not a bar, it, it's a plate. Yeah, so. you get the got to get the the forklift to get it under the press. Yeah, and I've been shopping gantry cranes and uh, yeah, wall-mounted cranes for being able to transport these from the furnaces to the to the hammer and rolling mill. Yeah, because they're they're going to be huge. Uh, from our Koi calculations, ba- each billet will start at around fifty-five pounds. So, Koi Baker, you're doing <laughs> it all. You're doing it all, Baker Forge. You're doing it all. I'm very I'm very happy for you. We all support you. Uh, we support you. everything that you're doing. We're excited for you. We're happy for you. I love, love, love the steel. Love, thank love, so love the steel. And hey, thank you so much like for I having s- on. Oh, dude, it's a play. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. We're going to talk about your dad. Heck we'll yeah. do it again 100%. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's super easy to use. You stock, this is perfect for stock removal, guys, because it's super easy to cut. You cut it with your, with your, with your shitty bandsaw. You can you can grind it easy. It just quenches in oil, low temperatures, eighty CRV two, nothing to write home about. It's perfect. It's perfect, perfect, perfect stuff, guys. I want you to go to Baker Forge and Tool on Instagram. I want you to also go to Baker Forge and sign up for the newsletter when they have their drops and stuff like that. I want you to keep your eye on 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 Koi. You got you gonna have something else besides the Gator Piss because Gator Piss is now you have a high bar in terms of crassness that you gotta <laughs> exceed. I said, you know what I was, I'll tell you what I was with, uh, Brent, Ben Stewart, Ben Stewart says to me, what are they going to do? They're going to do a clay. They're going to do a clay for, uh, hormones. They call it monkey shit. And I was like, <laughs> now I'll bring it up to Koi next time I see him. So there you go. That's, that's a free one. You give Ooh, extra that, crass. I think that one's a little, little out. That's way crass. That's way crass. But you know. But hey, if Ben will endorse it, I might be on board. <laughs> they can't, you know, they can't all, you know, when you, you swing, you got to swing at pitches. They can't yeah. all go out of the park. You know what I'm saying? You know what That's I'm saying? That's true. That's true. Can't win them all. Koi Baker, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, guys. You heard what I said. Go follow Koi on Instagram, Baker Forge and Tool. Go buy his steel. I, I swear by it. Go get yourself a couple of jugs of gator piss and stop playing. Koi, thank you once again. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. We're going to see you next week. Thanks again.